You are listening to The Natural Philosopher with Dr. Mick Pope, a podcast on science, the environment, and the Christian faith. This podcast is written and produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging of all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nations, acknowledging that sovereignty has never been ceded. It always was, and always will be, Aboriginal land. Well, welcome back to The Natural Philosopher with me, Dr Mick Pope. In the last episode, I began reading to you from a lecture I gave uh, some years ago entitled Preaching to the Birds where I examined the whole concept of eco-missiology, which briefly defined is the whole concept that mission is reconciliation at all levels and includes human beings' reconciliation with a non-human creation. The idea that we're not saved from creation in some dualistic sense, that Christianity is all about just going to heaven when we die, but we're saved with creation, that we have a shared future with non-human creatures and the earth itself. And the way in which I started to formulate that was what, with what's known as a narrative theology, which says that there's an unfolding story from creation to new creation in the two testaments of the Bible, the Hebrew Bible or Old Testament and the New Testament. And we started through the first um, four acts. They were, if you remember, the creation and starting particularly with the wonder and delight and the magnificence of the world which God has made and how one can't simply separate human culture from a study of the natural world. Then we talked about the fall, which is normally associated with Genesis 3. The full uh, development of that idea is saved for another time, where relationships between human beings and between human beings and God, between human beings and creation are broken. And then the whole saga of Israel how God unites a people to God's self to bless the entire world. And in the practices of Israel, we see the beginnings of an eco-theology, particularly in Sabbath practice, something um, that's dear to my heart as I progress through my master's degree. And then we talked about Jesus and the incarnation, well, particularly uh, thinking about the cross as among other Issues, and I don't want to get into the atonement wars, uh, at, at least at this stage, the idea that the cross is a victory over evil as being one of the, the lenses through which we read the cross. And that, that's very amenable to thinking about eco-theology when we start to think about human sin, not just in individualistic terms, as important as that is, but how we're evil together and how as um, a species, as a human race, we've done great damage to the non human world around us and how that's manifest particularly uh, in some organizations and you might extend that to politics at times as well and so we come now to thinking about the church in this whole narrative framework so we can talk then about the fifth act of the five act play the act in which we're meant to uh, improvise based upon what we know from the bible and other sources of wisdom, as I extolled in the first episode, um, 
the age of the church or indeed the age of the spirit because Christ sent the spirit upon the ascension. So it's the age between the, the coming of Christ, the incarnation and Christ's return. So resurrection is incredibly central to this whole idea. Now, sadly, there's much understanding about the nature of this return and hence the mission of the church today. Perhaps the clearest passage with an implication for eco-mission is Romans 8, 19-23. And I alluded to that a couple of programs ago um, in the episode about why Christians should care about climate change. Now, in Romans, Paul explains how God is true to God's covenant promises in the face of Jewish unbelief. And so Paul, of course, sees the coming of Christ as, as God in the flesh and Israel's true Messiah. And the guts of the, the four Gospels is all about Jesus preaching to the Jews, his own people. Because as we saw earlier, the central act of the five-act play, of course, is, is the calling of Israel. So there's no room whatsoever, even in the context about talking about Jewish unbelief, for anti-Semitism of any form. God achieves through the Messiah, this Jewish Messiah, um, Jesus, who has come, who's God come in the flesh, the fulfillment of all these covenant promises. Those who are in the Messiah are, quote, sons of God in Romans 8.14, or indeed children of God. And I, I talked about in the previous program how the, the language of sons of God is language about inheritance in a, a less than egalitarian world where the oldest son would inherit the family fortune. But this phrase, sons of God, that Paul uses in Romans, was also used to describe the whole people of Israel in Exodus 4.23. And now it's those led by the indwelling spirit, uh, Romans 8.9-11. Just as Israel was led by the fiery pillar, uh, or the, the pillar of smoke, uh, Paul talks about Christians having been rescued from slavery to sin, just as Israel had been rescued from slavery in Egypt. Now, the parallels that Paul is drawing in Romans um, between uh, the Christian believer now, those in the Israel's Messiah, and the Israelites themselves in the Exodus, is all the more striking if we allow the identification of baptism, which Paul talks about in Romans 6, as passing through the water of the Sea of Reeds, or the Red Sea. And Paul does precisely this in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 2. In other words, in Romans, Paul is retelling the old, old story of the Exodus, the old, old story of Israel, and now saying that Jesus, as Israel's Messiah, has fulfilled this. And one of the big thrusts of Romans is that regardless of whether or not you're a Jew or a non-Jew, otherwise known as a Gentile, if you have faith in this Messiah, you are included in this. Therefore, just as Israel was led into the promised land, so Romans 8 does not end with eternity in heaven, in a kind of abstract spiritual sense, but the future of the whole earth. The personification of creation together with its co-groaning with humanity, groaning in both pains, and its eventual liberation, all bestow upon it a dignity without reducing to or manifesting a form of pantheism. That's not a, a, a Jewish Christian worldview. This groaning is no mere metaphor, but based upon Paul's observations. Rome, for example, was responsible for significant deforestation as the result of timber harvesting for construction of its warships and metal smelting for weapons, etc. This led to an increase in malarial infections as well as flooding, river mouth silting of the Tiber River, and soil erosion in the vicinity of Rome. 
Erosion was widespread in ancient Rome and Greece, as well as microclimate change, leading to a decline in agricultural production. Such are the results of empire, in stark contrast to the poet Horace's claim that about Augustus that Caesar has brought back fertile crops to the fields. So in Romans 8, Paul's making a very deliberate political statement, as well as a theological one and an environmental one. This should remind us of the negative consequences of the modern agricultural revolution, including including eutrophication of waterways due to overuse of fertilisers. What's that? It simply means that if fertilisers find their way into waterways, they fertilise algal growth, and when the algae dies and decays, it consumes large amounts of oxygen and renders those rivers, lakes, streams, etc. unviable for fish and other forms of life. And it also reminds us that the, the great benefits of pesticides is leading to the decline of bees, which are the, those that pollinate many of our foodstuffs and so is incredibly self-destructive. And in a country like Australia, we think too about increasing salinity and in many parts of the world, desertification, so the turning over of fertile land into desert, all by uh, poorly managed agricultural practices. The futures of the creation and of the children of God are intertwined. The creation longs for the future revealing of the sons of God, again that language of adoption, so it's not just meaning men, and groans in birth pains as we groan for our adoption, our sonship. Because when we are revealed as the children of God, the creation will find its own liberation. Verse 21. Just as humanity was given over to sin, and you read about that in Romans 1, 18 to 32, and now in Christ through the Spirit hopes for resurrection, that's chapter 8, verses 23 to 24, so the creation was subject to futility in hope. We have the first fruits of the Spirit as those who will be raised by um, the one who raised Christ. The creation co-groans with the sons of God, and the daughters of God indeed, for as the first fruits we prefigure a greater harvest which includes all things. There are hints of the pneumatological groaning as well, and that's the groaning of the Spirit. The Spirit groans for us in our weakness as we groan for redemption, and the creation groans for its redemption too, tied up with ours. It seems that there is a sense in which the Spirit that hovered over the waters of creation, Genesis 1-2, even now groans with it. Because only the God who subjected creation to frustration can liberate it from that frustration, what does that say about our eco-mythological task? Well, firstly, we should groan with creation, empathetically feeling its suffering and the suffering that others experience as a result of our misrule. This includes a sense of mourning and of contrition. Secondly, we are called to live in hope. Hope that God will return and put everything to rights, including the state of the creation. This hope energizes action instead of leading to apathy. You know, it'd be easy to say, oh, God's coming back to fix it up, so what I do doesn't matter or I don't care. Likewise, while we are to feel appropriate guilt, we are not to be paralyzed by it, nor motivated solely by it. Guilt's a really poor motivator. Hope is our watchword as we live proleptically in the light of the redemption that creation will share with us. And proleptically is just a fancy word of saying, we know God's coming back to fix things up, to transform the whole of creation. Let's start living as if that future reality was actually happening in the present. And when we do that as the church, it actually is. That's exciting, yeah? So start pulling weeds and doing other stuff. 
And this hope informs our sense of justice as we see human and natural ecology out of shape and work to alleviate the suffering of others who suffer because of environmental degradation. As one day God's shalom or peace will extend to all things, we should seek peacemaking with each other and with the creation now. And another time I'll talk about the close relationship between war and environmental destruction. So if we're really truly committed to peace, if we're truly pro-life, then we're not at all interested in war or environmental destruction or a whole bunch of other things for that matter. So let's reframe our symbols and questions. Okay, what does that look like? We can see from the preceding discussion over the past episode and a bit that we can reframe some of the classic questions of Christian theology in the light of this more holistic view of mission. So moving beyond just a focus on the purely individual, though while not neglecting it all, the great thing about this approach is that you get everything back that you had before, but you gain so much more. Firstly, the question of who are we? We are created in the image of God to bear this image to the rest of creation, ruling over it and caring for it as God's servants in God's temple cosmos. Human flourishing and well-being relies upon maintaining good relationships with God and with each other and carrying out our responsibilities to care for creation. You know, even if that care is just limiting our own harm done, which is more often the case than not. The bestowal of the Imago Dei, or image of God, implies the carrying out, as I said before, of the Ecomissio Dei, or the ecological mission of God. In other words, we are the divine hands uh, and feet in the world. What about what's the problem? The fall represents broken relationships with God, each other, and the creation, leading to its groaning under our misrule as we either treat it as divine, and that's idolatry, or as disposable, which invariably means idolizing the economy, wealth, or other things. As a result, human and natural ecologies are warped out of shape. And when I say nat- human ecologies, I mean you know, the way our cities function, the way our economies function, the way in which we treat the poor, uh, uh, immigrants, um, refugees, etc., etc. Our, our, our relationships, that's out of shape, as well as our relationship with natural ecologies. And I know I'm using natural and human in a, a terribly dualistic sense, but just run with it. It's the way in which we normally talk about things. So what's the solution to the problems from a Christian point of view? The cross, where Jesus defeats evil in all its forms and reconciles all things to himself. And that evil can be within or without. What time is it? We live not in some Edenic or paradisical past, nor some heavenly future, but in the age of the Spirit, where all creation groans, awaiting Christ's return and the revealing of the children of God. Until that occurs, individual and corporate greed and idolatry lead to human and non-human suffering. And so the mission of the church that follows on from this, I'll discuss in the second half of the program.
Well, welcome back. We've been running through some fundamental theological questions, such as who are we, what's the problem, and what's the solution, or indeed what time is it in terms of history. And now I want to turn to the implications of this for what are we to do. The Great Commission calls us to make disciples of all nations, so that the people of God may be formed out of every nation, tribe and tongue. It's a wonderful celebration of human diversity. Now this discipleship includes not only instruction of right belief and practice and personal virtues, but peace, justice and wise rule or wise living with creation. We live proleptically in the light of a future where the whole creation finally attains to its divine telos or purpose, which is this this peaceful world, whatever that might look like. And I know that's hard to imagine um, in a world of war and human sinfulness and natural disasters and predation and parasitism and so on. So precisely what they will look like is almost anybody's guess but it will mean human beings not doing a great job of messing things up. There are also a number of symbols or boundary markers of the Christian life that need to be understood in a broader context now that we've drawn this big picture of eco-theology. Now two that Wright, that's Tom Wright, refers to are baptism and the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper, or the Mass, if you like, if you're Catholic. In the case of the former, water is a symbol of the inner cleansing of the spirit, an outward visible sign of an inward visible invisible grace, as Anglicans would say. And I've been Anglican for many years now. Church of England, or Episcopal if you're from the US. Scripture attests not only to the purifying, but also the life-giving nature of water. See, for example, John chapter 4. As the universal solvent for life, so all the chemical reactions that make up life all occur in water, um, and a potentially future scarce resource with changing rainfall regimes associated with climate change and contamination by fracking um, for, for natural gas, uh, pollution with um, oil spills and um, fertilizers and pesticides and all the sorts of things that we, we idiotically put in our water, God's people should value water more and employ its symbolism in more imaginative ways. Uh, Christians should affirm, if what somewhat tentatively, what Lauren Isley said. Uh, Lauren wrote, If there is magic on the planet, it is contained in water. Truly a, a wonderful, wonderful uh, chemical. The Eucharist, or Lord's Supper, is often a performance and what I call a fast food version of Kingdom Table Fellowship. The reality that we are the children of God awaiting our adoption is expressed in the celebration of a corporate meal that remembers that this adoption was purchased at great price. And, you know, this this rubs all the more. Here I am sat in my lounge room in the middle of a pandemic where the best you can do is go out and buy takeaway uh, and you can have a meal in your own home, but you can't go to church and celebrate this meal. You can't gather with other Christians and celebrate meal. You can't gather with your friends. And eat together, which is a fundamental expression of fellowship and relationship. As God's new body politic on earth, uh, we corporately as the church practice all that the new creation will entail. Peace, justice and harmony with the created order. This harmony will entail just eating, 
the proper consideration of the impact of our diet on the environment and the justice or otherwise of the economics of the food consumed. Missiologically, both to creation and our multicultural neighbours, this may include halal and vegetarian or vegan meals. And although I'm not vegan myself, I'm still an omnivore, um, in better times I do think very carefully about a more vegetarian diet. Again, a topic for many other programs. It should almost certainly include homegrown produce, attempting to heal the rift between garden and table that urbans often experience. So I highly recommend growing your own food. Uh, And again, we'll talk more about that uh, as a spiritual practice on other occasions. Perhaps too, associations of Harvest Festival with Pentecost could be more strongly drawn, especially in less liturgically based communities. So if you don't have a prayer book or all those kind of practices, you can still draw a strong connection of the church calendar with the agricultural year, as indeed the Israelites did. Finally, prayer and worship, as defining features of any Christian community, should go a lot further in recognising the role that creation plays doxologically, which is a fancy word in terms of uh, which means basically praising God. Likewise, in lament, confession and petition, Creation should receive due attention. And I draw attention uh, to things like, um, I was involved in a project a few years ago that's kind of uh, not an active concern at the moment, hope for creation. But um, there's also the seasons of creation. So there are lots of resources developed uh, in Australia by the Uniting Church uh, that can be used to, to raise these issues in church. So on then to eco-praxis. Eco-praxis is eco-missiology in practice, action informed and shaped by the holistic narrative described above. That's the creation to new creation story going through creation, fall, Israel, Jesus and the church or the age of the spirit. Dealing with the questions it raises and the symbols that define an eco-missiologically oriented community. So what might might, uh, this involve? What sorts of things could you consider? The sharing of the gospel is to be incarnational and contextual. In other words, you're meant to be Jesus to other people. Not pointing the finger uh, like some Pharisees uh, are described as doing in the New Testament, but loving people, being loved to people, incarnating that love and shaping the way in which you present the gospel in a contextual manner. Although the present environmental crisis requires us to rediscover uh, the deep green ecology of scripture, there has always been a green subculture that requires us to be incarnational in our mission. That is, the credibility of our witness comes not from the strength of our convictions or the thickness of our narrative alone, but from the dirt under our fingernails, quite literally when it comes to eco-mission. That being said... The thickness of our narrative will ensure we can dialogue with and work alongside those with whom we share common concerns, but who live under different narratives. It's okay for Christians to work alongside uh, people of other faiths, for example, or none in this endeavour. On the one hand, we need to recognise the warnings of Romans 1 and the dangers of what Christians call idolatry. Christians will not be saved either by seeing... um, a creation will not be saved, either by seeing it as divine, as some eco-pagans might do, or as disposable in the dualistic end of Christianity. To engage in eco-mission will mean taking flack from both sides. Um, to one reader of a blog I used to run, I am a pagan for suggesting Christians should recognise Earth Hour. 
to an environmentalist blogger, I'm supposed to keep my religion out of the discussion of environmental issues. The church and its adherents have done too little, too late, and stand condemned of ecocide. At various times and places, this charge may stick. Tim Flannery once recounted how the efforts of Baptist missionaries in Papua New Guinea to end pagan beliefs in a sacred grove led to a decline in bird of paradise numbers in that area. The narrative I have offered could both demythologize nature, rendering it not divine, but still recognize it as God's sacred cosmos temple filled with creatures valuable to God. The narrative that led to the grove's destruction is anemic compared to this vision. It's really just not the full story that the Bible presents. Therefore, while we recognize the uniqueness of the gospel as Christians and the dangers of idolatry, we need to seek fruitful dialogue. And Acts 17 provides a useful model. In seeking a close connection with nature, some environmentalists are following their God-given inclinations to seek God out. What is required is to show that Jesus is the creator of all that they value and that Jesus too values it and died so that we might be reconciled to the triune or three-person God and as a result with each other and the creation. We should be slow to speak and quick to listen to critiques of the church's role in past creation abuse. For goodness sake, people, show some humility. Um, I'm not saying my podcast has all the answers and we need to confess about the past role the church has had um, in mistreating the world around us, the creation. Likewise, there may be much we can learn from others in how to value nature. And to repeat myself and something I'll keep coming back to, this is particularly significant um, in Australia, for example, listening to Aboriginal peoples in general and Aboriginal Christians in particular. Gardening provides an opportunity to connect gospel, community and creation together in a holistic fashion. In an excellent paper presented at the Australian Association of Mission Studies Conference way back in 2011, my friend Miriam Pepper provided a number of examples where Australian churches have become involved with local communities. The traditional model of mission has been attractional, where seekers are invited into our space on a Sunday morning or evening. The rest of the week, church facilities are largely unused. A church garden that invites community involvement provides a shared space that is both attractional and incarnational. It is a space of dialogue, of shared interest and activity. Church-run community gardens are not merely a front door into the real business of church, quote-unquote. They are church. These gardens are gospel-centered communities where the biblical narrative is reenacted and where reconciliation is modeled on all levels. And I'm just trying to find my place. (laughs) They provide the opportunities to form relationships and share the gospel through conversations while tilling the soil. Yet such shared tasks of earth care, organic food growing and reconciliation with the soil are sharing the gospel message in all its fullness. The connections that can be drawn via fates and festivals such as harvest festivals and the broader community close the gap between Sunday and Monday. As Miriam Pepper notes, garden-based ecomissiology is deeply contextual. There is no one-size-fits-all. In some settings, community gardens provide opportunities for local migrants to connect with each other 
and others in their community, providing language and social skills. In others, food produced is provided for those living with HIV AIDS. In others still, gardens provide community hubs for artists, schools, musicians and Aboriginal uh, and Torres Strait Islanders. As a final example, uh, or, or rather a final example, is the work of Arosha. Arosha describes themselves as, quote, an international Christian organisation which, inspired by God's love, engages in scientific research, environmental education and community-based conservation projects. Arosha comes, a name comes from the Portuguese for the rock, named after their first initiative began in 1983, which was a field study centre in Portugal in an important wetland. And they're now, I think, in over 20 countries with a small group of people uh, getting Arosha going in Australia as well. And I hope to interview various people from Arosha in Australia around the planet in future episodes. Arosha bases their work on five C's. The first is Christian, stating that underlying all we do uh, is our biblical faith in the living God who made and loves the world, uh, who made the world, loves it and entrusts it to the human society. Theologically, Arosha is broadly evangelical. Secondly, Arosha is focused on conservation. Uh, thirdly, Arosha focuses on community, and many of their projects involve Christians living locally in community, near or within the habitat which they're caring for. Fourthly, Arosha is cross-cultural, committed to drawing on the insights and skills of people from diverse cultures, both locally and around the world. Um, and hopefully that becomes a continuing foundation of Arosha in Australia. And finally, Arosha believes in cooperation, quote, with a wide variety of organisations and individuals who share our concerns for a sustainable world. I mean, how can you witness the people if you refuse to work with them because they simply don't share your worldview? And there are many wonderful stories uh, about Arosha around the world, but I'd like to draw to a close. Now, hopefully I've been able to demonstrate over the past two programs that the concept of echo mission runs deeply through the biblical narrative and is more substantial than greenwashing the gospel in the name of relevancy and more lucid than, quote, preaching to the birds. Echo mission leaves us with questions and challenges for mission in theory and in praxis. Given the environmental challenges we face in the 21st century and the crisis of narrative that modernism in its faith and progress has produced, and then the confusion and return to paganism that postmodernism has uh, has followed, how will we respond? How can we revision our theology from our understanding of the Godhead to the nature of the atonement to address these issues, to be the church incarnate in the world and yet be true to the biblical narrative? Indeed, how do we resist the ever-present challenge that paganism presents? We will be critiqued strongly from within our own ranks, um, by the church um, and from without outside of the church as being hopelessly part of the problem the challenge to praxis will be to learn how to leave our four walls of our church buildings embrace soil and community will we be willing to move church services from inside the buildings to clean up australia activities to invite others into our open spaces to till and toil giving up some of our autonomy to the wishes of others are we willing to chain ourselves to trains or trees in the service of the gospel as we take up the plight of the bleating and mooing of those who suffer? Just as Christ surrendered his hands to nails, will we surrender ours to the soil in order to bring healing 
will we groan with creation until Christ returns? I hope uh, the past couple of programs have been useful for you. Thank you for listening and God bless. You have been listening to The Natural Philosopher. This podcast was written and produced by Mick Pope. The theme music is from Antonio Vivaldi's Four Seasons, conducted by John Harrison with the Wichita State University Chamber Players and downloaded from the Free Music Archive. You can subscribe to this podcast on Podbean, Apple and Google Podcasts and Spotify. You can also like and comment on my Facebook page, Mick Pope, Natural Philosopher.